This episode of Your Teen with Sue and Steph is sponsored by Automatic, the connected car assistant that gives you more knowledge about your car and the confidence to worry less on the road. Visit Automatic.com and enter the code TEENDRIVER, one word, all in caps, for a $10 discount. Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we are talking with Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting, an online community aimed at helping parents raising differently wired kids. But before we talk to Debbie, we're going to chat for a little bit. And I don't know if you remember this, but if, like a few weeks ago as we were leaving here, we were merging onto the highway. <laughs> And something happened that neither you nor I knew what was going on, but another driver rolled down the window and gave us the finger. Yes! What was that? I don't know. We have not talked about that. He was, oh my God, he had such road rage. Aggressive. Yeah. Scary aggressive. Scary aggressive. What what I think is so interesting, because we have not talked about it, so this is going to be a surprise to you, I think, is... I did have that moment where I'm like, I'm going to follow him. No, no, I knew it. Wait, because you knew you, I had that yeah, moment? Yeah, because you started to accelerate, and I was like, do I say to her, this is not a good move? <gasps> like, but, that guy is not stable. Correct. Let's just let it go. Yes, and I did. I, I checked myself. That is totally so funny. Because you accelerated. That is you didn't so, even notice. I, oh, that is Because I did. I 100%. I had that moment where I'm like, you know what? bleep him. I'm going to show him he's not the boss of me. And the moment I had was, oh my God, my work spouse and my real spouse are the same person. (laughs) (laughs) Once again. Once again. But what would would Dan have, what would Dan have done? Well, we've been married a long time, so he would be thinking to himself, she's going to get really mad at me if I chase him. But he would want to. (laughs) Yeah, so WWDD, what would Dan do? Oh my God, that is so funny. So today we are going to be talking about kids that are differently wired. And I was thinking about, I have three kids, as you avid listeners know. I remember from the moment they came into this world, I knew how differently they were wired. And I think I've told Sue this story, but I can't remember. Zach came into the world loud, crying, yelling, doing his thing, lots of body movements. And I thought that was typical. And then two and a half years later, Ethan came into the world without a noise and just staring at us. And then Lane was kind of somewhere in the middle. And I always think back to their entrances and how indicative it was of their personalities. And then it just continued to show itself in, you know, what I think when you have your first one, that one becomes the norm and that's what's what is typical. And then the second one comes along and whatever they do that inevitably is different from the first, then you're wondering, well, wait, what's up with this one? Like, what? Is this normal? I just remember so many things with with our second son, and they were so different from the way he would line cars up and the way he would line cards up and stack things and carry things and just even, and it just kept going. I remember thinking, we went to someone's house, I think it was, and later we were going back to that same person's house, and I said to Ethan, oh, you know, we're going to so-and-so's house, and he's like, I don't know who they are, and I'm thinking, Ethan, you know them. They're good friends. We're there all the time, and then he said something like, oh, the one with the 128 tiles on the ceiling, I was like, it was the I see dead people moment 
What does that mean? It's like where, like, they come out with things and you're like, how are you seeing the world? Like, where the perspective, you're like, oh, my God. Like, you could have left me in that room for a thousand years. I would have never come up with the 128 tiles on the ceiling. And just how how kids see the world so differently. And he continues to, you know, just in, in so many ways. Things that would never hit my radar, they're just him. I don't even know how else to describe it. Well, I think a lot of this the conversations about differently wired to me makes me think of school being the obstacle. Mm-hmm. Because in the real world, when you get out and in toddlerhood, before you go to school, it's just, I mean, we just observe our kids and say, wow, they're so different. Like that one is counting ceiling tiles and that one is racing towards socializing and that one has got a, their nose in a book. And and we're not busy thinking about what's right and what's wrong. They just are that. Yeah. But then school has so many constraints to it that all of a sudden, like you're getting a phone call that it's, you know, this it's not working. This is not working. Whatever the not working is, your kid's not following the rules. They can't sit still. They're disruptive. Whatever call you're getting is all about some artificial constraints of this building called school. I actually look with envy at other families where they have had all their kids go through the same academic institution, and it has seemingly worked for them. Because that has not been our experience. Yeah, but on the other hand, I would say pat yourself on the back. Because when I saw we used to have a Montessori high school in Cleveland. And the first time I saw it, I thought every kid should go to this school. It was like, I, I just, I had school envy. There are two schools in town that I always had school envy with. And you sent two of your kids to those schools and got to have this experiential learning for one kid who desperately needed it. And, I mean, who doesn't want that? That's such a... It should be woven into the fabric of our schools today where you're not sitting at a desk learning things that will never, ever have any meaning in your life. Rather, you learn math as you're doing math, right? Like, genius. And it's and why it hasn't changed is baffling. And I think, like, you know, for all of our kids, that camp experience of, of learning while doing, yeah, it energizes them, right? They're, they're not, like, w- complaining. I mean— Truthfully, I could never make it through open house. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was like, they have to do this. I'm I'm in open house for an hour going 10 minutes to each class and I want to die and they have to do it all day every day. Same. I suggested to Todd that we that we cut third period the other night at curriculum. <laughs> because it's just it's I've had so, enough. <laughs> I've had, had enough. enough. Honey, I have been here for about 28 minutes and I am done. So you know what I did? What? I got Dan to go. Oh, that's so brilliant. <laughs> I know. It is such a right. It's if you if you don't go, you feel guilty. And if you go, you say, why am I here? It is uh yeah. Mm. Okay, up next is our conversation with Debbie. We can't wait for you to join us. Okay, Sue, so you've taught five kids how to drive. What worried you the most? What worried me the most was that the day before they had their license, I was a wreck driving with them. And then the next day they have their license and they literally look at me and say, Mom, I got it. And what they mean by that is that the state has proclaimed me a safe driver, but I don't have that feeling at all. So they get in their car and they drive off and my primitive mom reaction says to them, Call me when you get there. In some, like, what does that mean and why does it protect them? But I need it. 
So let me guess, one of them forgets to text? Of course. Okay, so what do you do then? You go to our sponsor, Automatic, which offers a connected car assistant, which I love. The whole setup was so easy. You download the app, plug this really small device into your kid's car, and you're up and running. So I can check for that kid that, of course, forgot to text me and make sure they actually arrived where they said they were going. It's amazing. You don't have to nag your kid. You can totally control it on your own. You can just look at your app and see that they arrived where they said they were going. But for me, the thing I love most about Automatic is that you get roadside assistance. That's always been a huge worry of mine. It's such a no-brainer, and you too can have this peace of mind. Visit Automatic.com and order yours today. The connected car assistant that gives you more knowledge about your car and the confidence to worry less on the road. Visit Automatic.com and enter the code TEENDRIVER, one word, all in caps, for a $10 discount. Debbie Reber is the founder of Tilt Parenting, a website, top podcast, and online community aimed at helping parents raising differently wired kids. Tilt is founded on the premise that being differently wired isn't a deficit, it's a difference. Tilt's mission is to change the way difference is perceived and experienced in the world so these exceptional kids can thrive in their schools and in their families and in their lives. Thanks for being here, Debbie. Thank you so much for having me. What brought you to start Tilt? Well, I started Tilt because I discovered pretty early on when my son Asher was maybe three or four that he was moving through the world in an atypical way, that he wasn't kind of on this, the same path as a lot of my friends' kids were. So over time, we discovered that he is what I call differently wired, which means he's neurologically atypical. He's gifted. He has ADHD. He has some sensory issues. And going through the journey of raising a kid who doesn't necessarily fit inside the box was really challenging because it was hard to access information and resources. And I felt very alone. So I started Tilt Parenting really to support other parents like me. And there are a lot of us out there, but so that we could know that we're everywhere and that our kids are actually just fine as they are and to provide inspiration to those parents. Well, I know you've done that. So thank you from all of us. And I wanted to just ask you back when you started noticing uh, when he was three or four, how did that feel at that time? How, what was your reaction to noticing that something was different? It was really overwhelming because, you know, first of all, it was it was hard to even know if there was truly something going on or not because, you know, with a lot of these kids and as was the case with my son, the differences are really invisible. So we'd get conflicting messages from pediatricians and teachers. And so part, part of the time, my husband and I felt like we were being, you know, uh, stressed out helicopter parents who were looking for problems. And then half the time we're like, no, this is definitely more intense and harder than what we're seeing our friends experience. So there was a little bit of feeling just like we we're going crazy a little bit almost, you know, cause we just weren't sure what was going on and we didn't know where to turn for more information. So it was pretty overwhelming and tough. Can you remember the range of feedback you were getting from different professionals? Well, I remember taking him for, you know, just a, a wellness checkup with our pediatrician when he was maybe four. And 
it happened to be a day that Asher was being really precocious and chatty and he just delighted our pediatrician. He's like, wow, what a fascinating, cool kid. And I was like, yes. And, (laughs) you know, there's a really intense and challenging too, but he didn't see that. So he, he would just say, you know, things, this all falls within the range of, you know, of typical developing behavior for this age. But then in a, a preschool setting, we'd get feedback like, you know, your child is really struggling with really big emotional reactions to things that that shouldn't upset someone this much. And so, you know, there was a lot of feedback about just the level of intensity or anger or frustration and that it wasn't being expressed in what would be considered an appropriate way. So you end up with a diagnosis and that's because you were you had a gut feeling and you're getting this feedback from school and you persist. How do you take that and weave it into a story that loses the devastation and moves into this beautiful acceptance? Well, I think, you know, what I've come to realize about diagnoses is they're really just information. I think I used to look at it as kind of the answer. You know, once we had a label or a diagnosis, then we could get to quote unquote fixing what was going on. And, you know, I had to kind of realize over time that actually, first of all, this is just insight into my child's strengths and some relative challenges. And so how do I more play on his strengths and better understand who he is rather than try to get him to kind of fit into this image that I had for what my child would be like. So that was a process that took years. You know, it wasn't like uh, flipping a switch. It was definitely, uh, it took time to kind of come to terms with, you know, realizing, okay, there's nothing broken here. Actually, my child is incredible and as he is, and this is who he is in the world. So how can I meet him where he is and support him so that he can truly thrive? In the classroom setting, which I know you eventually have been homeschooling him, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So in the classroom setting, when there's a very large reaction to something that seems not to be similar to the other kids his age, how would you explain to a teacher what the best way was to interact with him? It depended on the teacher because some teachers are more open to feedback than others. So, you know, at one of the schools we ended up pulling him out of in first grade, I tried to provide them with a lot of tools as kind of preventative measures. Like here are some signs to look for when he's getting dysregulated. Here are some things to get him back on track if he does. And sometimes teachers really feel that they're the experts and they're not open to that because they're really concerned with their classroom management style and, and they have years of experience. And I'm, you know, at the time I was just this clueless parent. And then in, in some other settings, the teachers were really collaborative and they would want as much feedback as possible. So, you know, the, one of the schools Asher was in, there was just kind of a continuous dialogue, actually a lot of check-ins after school, what happened today, what worked, what didn't work, and how can we kind of proactively deal with some of the situations that are coming up again and again as being challenges. And tell us more, you referenced um, a couple schools. So um, obviously there were uh, a couple fits that you tried for. So tell us more about that and when you ultimately decided to homeschool him and what what that looked like. So, yeah. So 
he was in three schools in three years, which was not the plan, I will just say, uh, going into kindergarten. But he was in a, in a private school for highly gifted kids for kindergarten and half of first grade. And, you know, he is gifted. And, and, and on one level, we thought this would really provide the challenge he needed. But as it, as it turned out, the, the structure and the rigidity of that setting didn't really work with his learning style and his need to kind of move around and really approach things in a creative way. So we, he spent the second half of first grade in a, another private school that was, had more of a social justice mission. It was not academically intense, but it was very much about social emotional development. And that was actually a really safe place for him, but he was bored and he was also still really intense. And, um, so we ultimately moved him then to a public school in a full-time gifted program with an IEP. So he had accommodations in the classroom. And I'd say that was probably the best fit of the three schools, but he still was not thriving, you know, within the restrictions of that traditional classroom setting. It, you know, he was still bored. He was starting to dislike learning and he was spending a lot of time frankly, in the principal's office, because he would get upset about things. And so we pulled him out to homeschool him, actually, when we moved uh, abroad at the end of second grade. And I homeschooled him for six years. Again, not what I had intended to do, but that's what we ultimately decided he needed. And it was really successful because he was able to, to learn the way he learns and to uh, you know, just kind of get out of this perpetual fight or flight mode, which is kind of where he was when we pulled him out of school. And I will say that he's now, he's starting high school and he is going to now a small private school here. So he's back in the school system and so far so good. That's amazing. Wow. That, yeah. must, that must feel good to have moved into a place where he's back in a school setting. It does. I mean, I think, you know, what I always say with these kids is that it's the kind of thing where you really have to reevaluate on a at least a yearly basis, if not more frequently, you know, what does my child need and is this working? And if not, do we need to pivot? And so for us, it was just an ongoing conversation. And last spring, Ash and I were just talking. We're like, you know what? I think it might be time for you to get more than what I can provide for you homeschooling and he really wanted to be around other kids. And so we found a school that really suits his learning style. And again, so far, so good. (laughs) If you go back to the time that you realize something is different and you talked about how it was a painful time. So someone's listening today and it sometimes it's a three-year-old, but sometimes it's a 16-year-old, right? Where what you thought it was going to be isn't turning out to be that way. And there can be a million reasons why that's true. So how do you go to bed at night with your brain spinning and waking up at three in the morning, worrying about it? How did you navigate that? I had to do so much work on myself. You know, I think so much of this particular path is hard because there is no path, right? There's no guidebook. There's a lot of stigma associated with many of, you know, neurodifferences and learning disabilities. And so parents are really suffering in secrecy. And when kids are younger and they, they're really struggling with their social emotional regulation, it can be really difficult. You know, the behaviors can be really big and you can feel like a failure as a parent. And so 
And I felt that way for years, you know, my husband and I did together and I had some friends who were very supportive, but at the end of the day, I still felt, you know, like I was alone in this. And so, you know, I ultimately reached out to a parent coach, maybe when Ash was, uh, I don't know, maybe seven and seven or eight and recognized that a lot of the pain that I was experiencing and my deep, deep pain and sadness and frustration was really stemming from myself and my own ideas about what this should look like and that not meshing with reality. And so I've spent years really kind of exploring, you know, what, what am I making this mean about me? Where is this pain really rooted from? And how can I work on that so that I can really respect who my child is as an individual and not put my baggage on him and really show up for him in a, in a genuine way. So that's what I try to share to my community at Tilt Parenting is to support parents in that, that journey. And it, it doesn't happen overnight. I'm still doing the work. You know, it's something I have to consciously show up to do every day. Well, I think it's kind of interesting because you, you've had to do something that you were pushed toward because of Asher. But we all, mm-hmm. on many levels, have to do exactly that as parents. And so in a lot of ways, you're ahead of other parents because of the struggles you dealt with with Asher. <laughs> I mean, really, there's no parent that yeah. doesn't have to say to themselves, why am I disappointed? Why am I pushing my kid to take one more AP? Or why am I so devastated they didn't get into that college, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the actual same conversation. It's the same underlying feeling of like, where do I end and they begin? You know, you're exactly right. And this is something I actually just gave a talk at a conference about this last weekend that by virtue of who our kids are, they really demand so much from us that we're really forced to do that work. Maybe earlier, um, you said, I'm, I'm a little ahead. I think you're exactly right. This is something that every parent experiences, but our kids don't really let us off the hook ever. And so we might be forced to do this work at an earlier age when our kids are younger and in, a, in just a, a, a deeper way maybe than a kid who's kind of you know, just kind of moving through in a more typical path and not pushing the boundaries as much would force their parents to do. Well, I I loved how you talked about just looking at, you know, looking at Asher and seeing the positives in him, right? And appreciating those differences. And do you think that your approach speaks to all parents? Absolutely. I believe that every child, you know, really thrives when they are, when they are parented through a lens of looking at their strengths. You know, I think if you even just look at the traditional educational model, you know, that most kids are in, and there are many kids who do just fine in that, you know, they do fine and they do their homework and get their good grades and they go on to college and they move on with their lives. Just because they're able to to do okay in that system doesn't mean that it's really nurturing their unique strengths. It just means that they're able to thrive within a system you know, this kind of general system. But, you know, to to really focus in on any child's strengths, that's where they're going to be spending their life. Hopefully, that's where their career is going to be focused. We want our kids to really develop their areas of strength and understand their relative weaknesses so that when they become adults and they launch, they really know who they are. You know, that self-awareness is so key to being a self-actualized, fulfilled adult. 
So one of the things that you've spoken about is these these kids who are differently wired have a hard time in school settings because they're stigmatized and bullied and and the world tells them that they're broken. So my question to you is, can kids at a young age learn to be more empathic? And this idea of talking about that kid is weird. How do we move away from that? Oh, I love that question. I think you're the first person who's ever asked me that question, but it's something I think a lot about. And, you know, I really love the idea of figuring out how to connect with kids at a pretty young age, you know, when they're in preschool and having really open conversations about neurodivergence, about different ways of being, because we know that young kids recognize difference, but they don't assign, you know, value to it. They don't think this is good, this is bad. They're just like, oh, that's interesting. That's kind of different. You know, Bobby's running around in circles. Everybody else is sitting down. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity to really nurture a generation of allies and and kids who really understand and can stand up for neurodivergent kids. Because rather than thinking that's a bad thing, they'll just be like, oh, well, that Bobby needs to run around because the way his brain is wired means he's got to move. That's how he actually is able to learn. And so I'd love to see this start in the preschool years because a lot of this is just misunderstanding, right? And it's misunderstanding across the board. So a, the teacher sets the tone for the culture of the classroom. If the teacher's, you know, shaming a child for the way they're quote unquote behaving, when that's really just a manifestation of their brain wiring, then that's where we need to start. And so how do you do that? How, how have you taught other people, friends, family, to see your son's gifts? And how would you how would you see that happening, making those changes? I think, you know, I say this to my community a lot. We are, as parents of these kids, we're in kind of the best position. We have the most at stake when it comes to moving this conversation forward. So a lot of it falls on us to to compassionately educate people, to, you know, to share openly our experiences. I really encourage parents to not hide what's happening in their families because when you hide something that immediately associates a negative, you know, that this is a bad thing, this is a secret. And I'm really trying to encourage parents to embrace, you know, their kids' differences and to speak their truth and their experience in a way that can just foster more understanding. I think this is the kind of thing change that happens one conversation at a time, but every parent who helps a teacher better understand their child is going to prepare that teacher for the next class, which is going to have another five or more neurodivergent kids in in that class. And you say that because statistics show that over 20% of kids are differently wired. Yeah. And I think that is a very conservative estimate. So I think it's actually way more than that, but that's you know, that's the number that we can all say, 20%. Yeah. So there's been a running theme of loneliness. And we talk about that all the time in parenting teenagers. But we see a lot of times parents, as their kids hit adolescence, struggling to find out what normal is and whether their kid is okay and whether they should worry about themselves as a parent, which leads to this question of why do so many of us feel lonely? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, my first thought is, you know, that 
we're so afraid, right? And I think when our kids are teenagers, the stakes feel a lot higher because, you know, we know that the plan is for them to move on to launch, whether that's university or a job or whatever that looks like. But we see that coming and we look at this child in front of us and we're like, we're just so not there yet. Like we're not ready yet. And we compare in despair, right? We see what's happening on our news feeds and otherwise, uh, you know, in our communities with other kids. And so we start looking at where our kids may not be measuring up or they're not where we think they should be. And so I think fear is a really strong driver that causes people to feel insecure and like they're, they're not doing enough and like they're failing. And um, I think that really is a big contributor to that isolation. So what advice do you have for parents of teens, parents who have differently wired kids and parents who don't? What would you say? Well, I really try to focus on zooming out and looking at the really big picture. I think, you know, we're raising human beings and we're raising these these young people to be, again, those self-actualized, self-aware adults, which, you know, we're talking mid-20s. You know, we know their brain doesn't even stop developing until their mid-20s. And for kids with narrow differences, they're lagging. So that could be even later. So I think it's important to not panic and and to really recognize our child's, you know, unique timeline, because whether they're differently wired or not, they are going to have, you know, be ahead in some areas and what we would perceive as lagging in others. And so I think we always just want to focus on the big picture goal and where we're going, not panic about the small stuff, you know, the little, the homework assignment that doesn't happen or, you know, the, the day-to-day struggles that we might have and not kind of project that to mean something terrible about the future, but rather just kind of notice where we are right now and keep consistently showing up and doing the work to help them understand who they are and know that it's a long, long process. Okay, I'm going to end with this last question that we always ask. What do you believe is the biggest parenting myth? That is such a good question. So I would say that... I think we have this idea that we can control who our kids are, you know, that if we do the right things, we read the right books, we make all the right choices, then we will control the outcome. And that's just simply not the case. Our kids are, you know, individuals, they're creative, they're resourceful, they're whole, they are on their own journey. And when they're younger, we may feel that we're, you know, that we do have control over them because maybe they're really compliant kids and we've done a, you know, the way we've disciplined has meshed with their need to please. But at the end of the day, they're on their own path. And so the sooner we kind of realize I have no control over who this child is, the the better we're all going to feel. That was beautiful. And I also really want to say that I was touched and, and changed by this notion of looking at our kids differently, not trying to fix them, and look at them for what their strengths are. So thank you for what you bring to the world. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. 
Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.